0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to this inauguration-slash-impeachment-eve edition of The Dan Proft Show, President Trump's last full day in office, which uh, leads one to reflect on... Trump presidency. And uh, you've seen a lot of op-eds discussing his uh, most important accomplishments, how he uh, changed the Republican Party, how he changed America, what legacies he he leaves behind that will be extended, which ones may not be, policy-wise, as well as culture-wise. And uh, the Trump administration has issued uh, a punch list of all of his accomplishments. And I want to I want you to think about that. What what is the what is the one area, or the most important area perhaps, where Trump really made a paradigm shift for the Republican Party? And thinking about uh, you know, Ludwig von Mises' famous observation that in order to improve conditions, one must Propagate a new mentality, not merely a new institution. So think about that as you have a moment of Zen here for me, via Melania Trump as she gave her farewell speech yesterday. And uh, I, I liked, uh, you know, that just thankful to law enforcement, thankful to military families. Talked about her Be Best program and all that stuff. It was fine, but I just liked the the ending of her speech. It really did, uh, with uh, an expression of gratitude. Gratitude, one of those values we've talked about on this show that uh, is not uh, present enough in American culture, thankfulness for what you have.
3: No words can express the depth of my gratitude for the privilege of having served as your First Lady. To all the people of this country, you will be in my heart forever. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.
2: Uh, Very nice sentiment, and she was a class act throughout the presidency. Uh, Now, getting back to Trump, thinking about what is that uh, that one area where he really shifted the paradigm for the Republican Party, changed the dynamic between the two parties? Uh, I uh, had this discussion on the morning show I co-host in Chicago. It was interesting the calls we got. There was a lot of people who um, suggested – the answer to the question were sort of the results of the paradigm shift. I say I'm saying occurred things like he exposed corruption in DC, exposed the depth of the swamp. And he did, he had uh, an uncanny knack for essentially prompting people, I guess you'd say to display who they actually are. And by the way, including some in his administration, some personal choices that were, um, less than wonderful personnel choices, A way of bringing out in people who they actually are. It's instructive because it's great to be able to see people for who they are and present people for who they are to uh, a wider audience. So it's clear, but that's not it. The uh, America first, the policy accomplishments. Yeah, there was, there's a lot of it in terms of the actual policy agenda I mean, again, take away Trump's name and you could put a lot of Republican names at the top of that agenda. Now, getting as much advance as he got advanced, you could argue whether anybody would have gotten as much done as he got done. But that also speaks to the paradigm shift I'm talking about. Have I teased you enough? Well, let me tease you just a little bit longer. Uh, Here's a podcast that uh, I will inflict on you, but just briefly. Hillary Clinton entertaining Nancy Pelosi and uh, impeachment, not enough. The suggestion of a 9-11 style commission to again investigate President Trump and uh, the uh, alleged collusion with Putin and the Russians that was afoot. Listen,
4: we learned a lot about. Our system of government over the last four years with uh, a president who disdains democracy and, as you have said numerous times, has other agendas. What they all are, I don't think we yet know. I hope historically we will find out who he's beholden to, who pulls his strings. Uh, I would love to see his phone records to see whether he was talking to Putin the day that uh, the insurgents uh, invaded our capital. But we now know that Not just him, but his enablers, his accomplices, his cult members have the same disregard for democracy. Do you think we need a a 9-11 type commission to investigate and report everything that they can pull together and explain what happened?
3: I do. Uh, Let me again, uh, to your point of who is he beholden to, uh, as I've said over and over, as I said to him in that picture with my blue suit. Right. As I was leaving, what I was saying to him Ravishing. as I was pointing rudely at him, with you, Mr. President, all roads lead to Putin. I don't know what Putin has on him politically, financially, or personally, but what happened last week was a gift to Putin because Putin right. wants to undermine democracy in our country and throughout the world. And these people, unbeknownst to them maybe, are Putin puppets. They were doing Putin's business when they did that at the incitement of an insurrection by the president of the United States. So, yes, we should have a 9-11 commission, and there is strong support in the Congress to do that.
2: It's like Brokeback Mountain with these two. I can't
3: quit you,
2: Donald Trump. Impeachment uh, 2.0, not enough. 9-11-style commission, support in the House to do that, to uh, saw sawdust over Russian collusion accusations, try to resuscitate that steel dossier Hillary paid for, huh? At least uh, Pelosi and the House Democrats socialists could do. Again, this is against the backdrop, not just about the investigation of the investigation of the investigation of the investigation. The only one pending is uh, the actual accountability one, the Durham investigation. But um, against the backdrop of left wing talking heads, internationalists like Fareed Zakari on CNN, admitting after the dust had settled that, yeah, you know what? It turned out that uh, President Trump was actually pretty tough on Russia. (laughs) But all roads lead to Putin. Once they commit to a line of agitprop, they stay committed. So, what is that now going back to the question, the paradigm shift? You see, to me, the paradigm shift, and it's evidenced by their persistence, was that Trump was unyielding. It was not going to be collegial with him. He was going to fight. Sometimes preemptively, he would go on the attack, which is you know, all fair in politics. And if he was attacked more often, he would come back just as hard or harder. It was his attitude, not necessarily his articulation, his articulation. As if you've listened to this show for the last year, or if you've listened to my show in Chicago, I've been often critical of his way of articulating that, uh, fighters attitude that was frequently problematic as were his targets, but being unyielding in the fight on the merits for particular policies, for particular cultural or social norms. I'm talking about living in a free society. I'm not talking about the Trump as the embodied America. Things like religious liberty, things like unborn life and the protection of it. If Republicans ever want to be in charge of anything again, including sporting a presidential candidate who was able to get 75 or 80 million votes. That's the legacy of Trump that must endure. Yeah, there were some things where he definitely uh, changed, you know, sort of a 15 degree dial turn with respect to the GOP's uh, attitude toward, for example, China. So that was that was a significant change. But the paradigm shift was really his approach, because prior to him, at least going back to Reagan. The approach of the Republican Party was, you know, embodied by former Wyoming Senator Malcolm Wallop when he said in the early 90s, before Gingrich led the revolt, the revolt to take back the House in 94, Malcolm Wallop, Malcolm Wallop observed the problem with the Republican Party is if the Republican, if the Democrats introduce a bill to burn down the Capitol, Republicans would compromise and agree to phase in over three years. That's what Trump changed. The attitude the willingness to go to battle for the constituents you say are the people you are committed to serve. And again, that better be an enduring legacy of the Trump years, perhaps better articulated, more surgically deployed. But if it's not, if they go back to what they were for the last two decades prior to Trump, then they're going to be a minority party for years and years to come. This is Dan Proft. Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Trump's accomplishments in the area of advancing school choice, opportunity scholarships, providing equal opportunity for kids regardless of their household income or their address. Uh, Another uh, flag that was advanced by President Trump to the extent you could advance it at the federal level with uh, the great Virginia Walden Ford, a.k.a. Miss Virginia from the movie. So stay tuned for Virginia right after this.
0: Dan
5: Proft
2: Show. Welcome back to the show. uh, Talking a little bit more about K-12 education in the context of uh, what's happened at the federal level. President Trump, including in uh, the Trump administration's accomplishments compilation, expanding educational opportunity. Uh, including the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act Expanding School Choice, allowing parents to use up to $10,000 from a 521 education savings account to cover K-12 tuition costs at public, private, or religious schools of their choice, calling on Congress to pass the Educational Freedom Scholarships and Opportunity Act to, ed- to expand education options for a million students of all economic backgrounds. That, unfortunately, was not included in the uh, last round of COVID relief that was uh, voted up by the Republican-controlled Senate signed by the President. Uh, One of the reasons it should have not been voted up, it should have not been signed without uh, – it was because that wasn't in it. Republicans should have gone to the mat on that. They didn't. Their mistake. But also this, signing legislation reauthorizing the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. The D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, which was the subject of the movie that we talked about on this show, entitled Miss Virginia. Have you seen it yet? If you haven't, then go see it. And by go see it, I mean you can go to Amazon and – Watch it on live stream service, uh, live streaming service, Amazon Prime. That's where I watched it. The uh, woman that's profiled in Miss Virginia, the woman who led the fight for the D.C. scholarship program and uh, the subsequent fights to keep it operational is Virginia Walden Ford, who we're pleased to have on the show again. Miss Virginia, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it.
6: Thank you for having me. I'm always delighted.
2: Uh, Well, uh, the movie was great. Uh, The story is even better, and uh, the impact, perhaps the best of all. Um, Why don't you give us your perspective on where the D.C. Scholarship Program stands today and and what you expect going forward in terms of the uh, fight to keep it operational?
6: Well, the D.C. Scholarship Program is right now is operational, accepting students and doing well, but we anticipate some issues going forward. This um, the Democrats have not in the past supported this program. So, but the program has done well. It's educated a lot of children over the years. There are lots of kids who still want to be in it, and we're optimistic that again we will be able to move it forward.
2: Uh, what What is it meant to DC? Because DC, like a lot of uh, urban centers, including my hometown of Chicago, has all sorts of uh, problems with public safety and economic opportunity, and, and it's those two are related to educational opportunity. You know, can you give us a sense of, of what it's meant in terms of uh, turning some lives and, and families around in D.C.?
6: Well, you know, this program has educated over 11,000 kids in, since two thousand four, and we, we're seeing children that were really struggling in schools in d c and uh moving forward we're at a point now where we're seeing our kids get graduate from college with master's degrees and doctorates so it has meant a great deal to our families i still get uh, calls from parents who say you know my child is doing really well had it not been for the dc opportunity scholarship program they probably would not have done well including my own son who received a scholarship and has really done well in his life but parents having options is so important and with this program they can continue to look at schools that best serve their children and uh, be able to to have access to those schools um you know dc public schools certainly has gotten better since the early years of fighting for this program but not enough you know and we still have a responsibility to make sure the kids have other ways to be educated with the education they deserve. So, you know, it's still there. It's still moving forward. We're ready and preparing for the future to be able to talk with the new administration on how important it is. And uh, I'm actually looking forward to it.
2: Well, it's interesting you say the D.C. public schools have gotten better since the Opportunity Scholarship Program got up and running. And that's been sort of one of the arguments of uh, school choice advocates is that, you know, competition – Makes people tighten it up and get better in order to survive, and uh, maybe the public schools aren't where they need to be. Maybe they're not uh, improving as quickly as everybody would like. But the fact that they're imp- improving sort of gives lie to the idea that oh, school choice scholarships will uh, will shutter the public schools, will eliminate public schools. No, in point of fact, competition makes uh, makes things better, including with respect to K through twelve education.
6: Absolutely, and and you know I've watched it over the years. I paid attention to how kids are doing in schools in D.C. and and around the nation with school choice programs. And, you know, it gives people that that whole attitude about, okay, we're going to lose kids if we don't get better, which was the point of school choice. Make sure that parents have schools that work best for their kids, But that doesn't discount traditional public schools. All schools should be working to provide a quality education for children. That's what we've been saying. You know, I've often said over the years that I'm not mad at anybody except schools that don't work for kids. You know, Mm -hmm. what we fought for was quality education. And that's what we want to continue to see happen. I think that, By having school choice options, parents no longer have to stay in a school that doesn't work for them, whether it's in their neighborhood. I mean, I've actually seen traditional public schools that were doing fine with kids, but too many aren't. The system has not changed enough. You have the, you know, that extra kind of renegade principal who says, I'm going to do this for my school. I'm not going to always go back, you know, what the system says I should do. And that's what we want to see. We want to see people that are investing in educating children. What do kids need to do well in school? And that's why it's really important to continue to have school choice programs. Uh, For a few years in DC, you know, everybody was kind of working together For the benefit of kids in schooling, including traditional schools. You know, that has changed somewhat, but it's not, it certainly has not gone back to what it was when I first started fighting in the 90s. And um, so we do see some movement forward. And what we have to focus on in the future um, is continuing to make kids our priority continuing whatever schools to have kids in the best possible educational um, environment you know and that that's what we're going to focus on moving forward what can we do to ensure that kids are getting everything they need i think being the pandemic has caused a lot of people to begin to think about what is best for kids and what can we do to move it forward. And, um, but I think it's going to take everybody to work together. Homeschoolers, traditional public schools, private charter schools, everybody's going to have to work together for the benefit of children. And that's what I want to see moving forward.
2: She is Virginia Walden Ford, AKA Miss Virginia. Uh, check out the movie Miss Virginia about, uh, her story and the story of the D.C. scholarship program wasn't easy. Uh, not just uh, watch the movie. <laughs> Don't just watch the movie. Uh, live the example of Miss Virginia, too, in whatever way you can to advance exactly what she was describing. Miss Virginia Walden Ford, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it.
6: Thank you all for having me. And the movie is shown on Netflix.
2: So Netflix and Amazon. Make sure, there you go. Yes. All right. Very good. Okay. Very good. Go see that movie.
3: Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Take
0: care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Kim Strassel writing the Wall Street Journal about uh, the response to from corporate America, I should say, since uh, January 6th, the uh, rioting at the Capitol. Corporate America took a big step this week, moving from captives of wokeness to active accomplices. The legal and political consequences may prove profound. She uh, talks about this uh, change in positioning and conduct. By withholding uh, essential services to conservative individuals, companies, and groups, they've turned themselves into political entities raising constitutional and antitrust questions. This goes way beyond big tech's censoring of Trump and Parler. Twitter, Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon Enter the fray by deploying a bogus rationale for banning the president from the biggest social media sites, then dismantling only uh, the only uh, effective conservative alternative, which raises free speech concerns. Corporations may feel emboldened because Washington Republicans are helpless— In terms of a legislative or regulatory response, she goes on. Maybe this step was to curry favor with the Democrats now in power. But she suggests the political fallout will nonetheless be seismic. The GOP may be fractured on discrete policy issues like Section 230, but this week unify them on a far more consequential point. Their reflexive support of big business is at an end. This will have far-reaching consequences for upcoming policy battles. Corporate America stepped up as a political enforcer this week, a political enforcer of the Jacobin left. My words, serious legal and political consequences come with that role for more on what's transpired really up until January 6th then of course, increased in pace and scope since. Please be joined by Adam Thierer, senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and author of Permissionless Innovation, the Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show. So the, uh, your reaction to uh, some of what Kim Strassel had to say about uh, uh, the sort of big business set, including but not limited to big tech, with uh, the purge occurring on multiple fronts now since January
1: 6th. Well, I think she's right. I mean, there's definitely uh, a big turn happening in the Republican Party and the conservative movement away from uh, sort of general support for the First Amendment and property rights when it comes at least to media enterprises and specifically large social media platforms. This battle has escalated and intensified greatly during the Trump years because, of course, President Trump very effectively utilized social media and Twitter in particular to communicate his message to a broad audience. Of course, in the process, he antagonized quite a few people, and a lot of his followers used quite inflammatory rhetoric and tactics at times to uh, to really instigate some pretty serious fights. And it raised the question of what should the quote-unquote community standards be for platforms as big and as broad as Twitter, Facebook, Google, and so on, which are not just national in scope, but global in scope. And And that is really the hard question we're confronted with today. How do you strike that balance to make so many people happy? What what I call the sort of elusive search for a Goldilocks formula by which we can make everybody happy. You know, can we get it just right, dial it in just right when it comes to content moderation? And the answer appears to be no.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, it seems to me, I I don't know, here's one suggestion, get your reaction to it. Why not just adopt as your standards? I know you're not under penalty of law to abide the same Supreme Court jurisprudence as the federal government or governments, generally speaking. But why not adopt the free speech standards that have been set forth not just by the Constitution, but then by important Supreme Court decisions like Brandenburg v. Ohio as your community standards? Our community standards are going to be consistent with our constitutional principles and, and where the court has weighed in. And uh, and then everybody has the same bright lines uh, in social media that they do in real life
1: Uh, as a principal basis. Of course, we do not generally apply the First Amendment to private media operations or private parties. Um, We apply it to governments and that's because governments have special, unique, coercive powers, whereas private companies don't have the exact same level of power. But, of course, practically speaking, there's the question of, well, why not just apply that same standard? It's pretty good to hold it to governments, right? Well, the thing is we want to have a thousand flowers blooming. We want to have different approaches, and clearly we want to make sure that some platforms are able to provide a a set of standards or content moderation norms that will achieve the broadest audience possible for them or whatever audience they're, they're looking for. So, for example, if we applied the First Amendment to Twitter, Facebook, Google, and so on, they wouldn't be able to regulate indecent content or pornography the same way they can today. They wouldn't be able to regulate hate speech or hurtful speech or harassment the same way. Our government is not allowed to regulate these things under the First Amendment, but large companies are. All companies are. Right. And that, generally speaking, is the right approach. Or else, a lot of these sites would devolve into cesspools of just hateful and (laughs) filthy and gross comment.
2: Well, okay. At
1: some point, would be uh, beyond the pale.
2: Uh, Okay. Well, uh, 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 all right. That's uh, that's perfect. So I want to pick it up right there um, and uh, and and talk about that that response and why. You suggest that would be problematic uh, for private companies to choose to adopt sort of the Supreme Court jurisprudence on the topic, like I've suggested. More with Adam Thier, senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, author of Permissionless Innovation, the Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. We'll be right back. (laughs)
0: Is the Dan Proft Show?
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Adam Thier, senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Author of the book, Permissionless Innovation, the Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. We're talking about sort of the community standards with the social media platforms such that uh, there is a better understanding and, frankly, more buy-in and less concerns about uh, purging of people based on their views, you know, their views that are well within the bounds of legitimate discourse. Adam, you suggested if we if we adopted the Supreme Court standards, the standards that apply to government, then these uh, platforms would become channels for, well, not to go all Potter Stewart on you, prurient interest. They would be cesspools. But it's interesting to me because that's sort of the point. The idea is that there they should be neutral channels. I mean, this is one way to approach it. Neutral channels and the content that's produced is a reflection on the content providers. It's a reflection on culture. I don't know. I I, the I and and which is the more imperfect model this and you can block people who post uh, pornographic or other content that you find offensive, just like you can now or having a small group of uh, minders make the decisions and inevitably arbitrarily and capriciously. So so Donald Trump has to go. But the Ayatollahs in Iran get to stay. Ridiculous. In terms of any sort yeah. of consistent standard, why not just take the Lewis Brandeis, the cure for speech you don't like, is more speech?
1: Well, I, I think that these are fair points. And I think, generally speaking, the two of us are probably more open to a more robust uh, exchange of views and content than many other people. But I think the better approach is what we need is diverse platforms for diverse citizenry. We need, a, a like I said, a thousand flowers blooming and. Yeah that's the better approach because we can't all possibly agree on what should be a community standard. We couldn't in the broadcast uh, analog age of uh, how we regulated radio and television. We had these these fights all over the place uh, before the internet came along and it was really, really difficult and it fell to a bunch of unelected bureaucrats at the Federal Communications Commission to try to sort these matters out and the results weren't very pretty. So I don't think it's going to end any better for social media especially with these being global platforms. The solution here is more and better platforms. It's more alternatives and options. I think when Mr. Trump Trump leaves office, one of the first things he's probably going to do is create his own, you know, new Trump media empire and, and really take on these companies. And let's keep in mind, companies don't want to exclude people by nature. They don't make money if they exclude content and people. So generally speaking, they want to invite more people, but they don't want to necessarily have any sort of content aired by anybody in any condition. That's never been the, 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 the way almost any media content or platform is. I agree some of these companies have gone too far. I also agree that some of these companies probably have people who lean to the left who don't like Mr. Trump or conservatives. I don't necessarily think that two wrongs make a right, however, and say, and therefore we should remove their First Amendment or their property rights to dictate what editorial discretion they have for their own platforms.
2: No, I I agree. Although, uh, you know, Richard Epstein, uh, the great uh, uh, law professor at the University of Chicago, Columbia, he makes the argument uh, over the weekend, The Wall Street Journal that uh, you could perhaps uh, make a common carrier argument with respect to the social media platforms because of their you know, size and scope and, and ubiquity that uh, there's something akin to uh, a, a rail, a railroad. There's something. Akin- yeah, and, and, yes. and
1: how, how has that worked out for those, you know, stodgy old industries. I mean, what you get with common carriage regulation is a plain vanilla offering. You basically get basic railroad freight carriage, you get basic telephony, you get basic whatever, basic electricity i understand for some essential services like those you just don't have a choice you say plain vanilla service is fine we just want cheap electricity or cheap freight movements or whatever else but that's not what media is all about Mm. and we don't protect those other industries with the first amendment we protect media and free speech with the first amendment that's the point we can't be with willy-nilly saying Let's have common carriage regulation, because that means let's have massive federal and state bureaucracies regulating speech online. I think that's a really dangerous idea, and I'm sad that Richard Epstein's proposed
2: it. Well, it's – but then so how, how – distinguish it then from um, radio and television where you are licensed, you have uh... – you have to live under yeah, federal law.
1: Absolutely. That, that, that's a terrible idea. We should have moved away from that decades ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is exactly the problem we've had for radio and television, and I've spent 30-plus years fighting against in all of my work, which is that they got second-class citizenship in the eyes of the First Amendment. It was ridiculous that radio and television in this nation was treated differently than newspapers. The newspaper industry and magazines and books got the gold standard of the First Amendment. None of this stuff that's being proposed today for social media would have ever flown for newspapers, r- books, or magazines. But it did apply to radio and television. And it was a disaster. It was a disaster. We, we had a situation where the Federal Communications Commission was in charge of dictating our community standards and deciding what, you know, what four letter words or what kind of content was allowed to be aired on primetime or, or the radio dial. We don't want that for Twitter, Facebook, Google or the, or the like. We want a wide open, robust marketplace. Let those thousand flowers bloom. Let's see if we can get more alternative media platforms, and let's see where that takes.
2: I think that's a, a, a salient argument. Now, uh, Parler, I think uh, I, my own sense of it and talking to people who are experts in this space is with Parler, however it was coded with within Amazon Web Services, it looks like it's got a real mess on its hand trying to get to uh, another w- a web service provider to get back yeah. online. Um,
1: I think that's a that, that's a more concerning point. What's happened to Parler is more troubling because they've been essentially they've gotten the digital death sentence, yeah, right? They've right. been un, they've been deplatformed at the very basic level of like hosting. And that is troubling. Now that again is Amazon's decision to make, but a lot of other people fall fell in line with Amazon and said, "Yeah, we don't want them either." Now, can Parler be reconstituted on other platforms? Here's the best news, Dan, that I've heard this past week, is that after that happened, we saw the biggest spike in alternative communications and media platforms in any given week on the Apple and Google app stores. We saw sites like Signal, MeWe, Gab, telegram and others explode in popularity now that doesn't mean they're going to be overnight sensations and become the next Twitter the next Facebook we, we need to be realistic about this but it shows that the, the, the you know competition is not dead innovation is not dead
2: and again let's try to create those alternative platforms
1: now if these companies continue to try to block at the infrastructure level that could be more problematic and we have to have more of a discussion about that
2: I think that yeah no I think that's right and and it's it's a, it's a reminder that you know Twitter wasn't Twitter before it was Twitter uh, you know this we've, we've we go through this all the time, especially with innovation. IBM, Big Blue, was a monopoly, and then along came Microsoft, and so on and so my forth. Fa- my
1: favorite headlines from the last fifteen years or fifteen years ago were like, "What we were going to do about the MySpace monopoly?" <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> it's an actual headline fifteen years ago in a newspaper. And who knows where MySpace at today? They still exist, but who cares, right? Yeah. And AOL Time Warner twenty years ago. Oh my gosh, people were wringing their hands, and chicken littleism was everywhere about AOL Time Warner. And now. <sighs>
2: The laughing stuff. I hope uh, 15 years from now we can say the same thing about Jack Dorsey. I really do.
1: Uh, (laughs) Adam. You know what? I think we probably will.
2: (laughs) Adam Thierer, senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, author of Permissionless Innovation The Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My
1: pleasure.
0: At
2: dot Welcome back to the show and a uh, point of personal privilege. He was a, a Chicagoan, but um, he was uh, not bound by that geography yesterday. Joe Scheidler, who is the uh, godfather of pro-life activism, as uh, many know him, the founder of Pro-Life Action League in Chicago, he passed away at the age of 93. And uh, just in case you had any doubt that the Almighty has impeccable timing, uh, Joe Scheidler started his life of activism by marching with Martin Luther King from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. He uh, chaperoned a group of students on a pilgrimage to march with King Uh, and uh, his son, Eric Scheidler. It's fitting that my father died on a day when Americans remember the legacy of Martin Luther King, seeing the impact that regular Americans could have by taking action against racial injustice, inspired my father to mobilize Americans in the same way in the fight against the injustice of abortion. Mm. Uh, And uh, I had the opportunity to uh, interact with uh, Joe, Several times over the years, being a Chicagoan and being involved in the pro-life movement as well, and uh, just a, a you know really a, a hero of the movement, uh, a gentleman, consummate gentleman, great family. Uh, he gave an interview in a, a magazine. I highly recommend Touchstone. This is now six years ago. It was interesting uh, some of what he had to say. He, how did he get started working on this? Uh, part of it was the experience with. Uh, marching with King, uh, of course, many years later, Roe v. Wade, the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, he was working as an account executive for a public relations firm in Chicago. He said the decision was so unbelievably evil in my eyes that I realized I couldn't let it go. I couldn't live in a country that would allow the destruction of its posterity. Roe v. Wade was, as Justice Rehnquist said, an exercise of raw judicial power with no precedent in law or morality, and I decided to fight it. And he uh, was asked, you know, this is six years ago now, uh, almost seven years ago. So the tender age of 86 or 87 at the time, he uh, was asked, do you think your work has made a difference? You know, 40 years, 45 years of activism. Well, you never really know what good you've done until many, many years after you're dead. But there are indications people have shown an interest in what we're doing and picked up some of our programs. They're doing undercover work at Planned Parenthood to find out what abortions are telling, abortionists are telling women, which I recommended in my book. Sidewalk counseling began before us, but I think we expanded it. And ultimately, he said, and I, I love this line because it's so indicative and so consistent with the moral position of the defense of unborn life, the protection of life from conception to natural death. Has what you achieved been worth the effort? And Joe Schiedler said if I saved only one person in the last forty years, that has been worth it. This segment in support of the sanctity of human life was brought to you by lifequotes.com.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Texas is a good choice. Clearly it's a good choice. Uh, Number two on the move-in list, uh, right behind uh, Tennessee this year, according to U-Haul. State representative down there named James White, he's in East Texas. Now I know West Texas is Friday Night Lights, you know, Odessa. What's East Texas? Well, we're going to find out. Representative James White is state representative. District 9 in state of Texas, chairman of the Texas House Corrections Committee. Maybe East Texas is known for kicking ass. Uh, Representative White, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Thank you so
2: much. And- yeah, it's our pleasure. So you append this piece uh, over at com, explaining why you support the rights of lawmakers to bear arms on the job. And uh, I got to tell you, I could probably uh, go along with that for Texas legislators. Now, in Illinois, in the Chicagoland area... Picturing these Barney Fife legislators we have roaming around the, the Capitol with guns, I don't know if that would work out so
5: well. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. And we're extremely proud to represent five great counties in East Texas, Polk, Tyler, Jasmine, Newton, and Harton counties. And we would just say as long as those colleagues of mine in Illinois are law-abiding citizens, We think they should obviously exercise their right. It's a right that they already have. They should exercise their right and extend that right uh, to their citizens as well.
2: Hey, uh, I know you're, you know, Texas polite, but I got to tell you, you don't want to claim these legislators up here as your colleagues. You don't want that stink on you. So, uh, you know, just be careful how you're throwing that term colleague around. So you uh, actually uh, picked up this issue, um, this uh, newly elected uh, Colorado congresswoman named Lauren uh, Boebert carrying... Uh, her weapon on the grounds of the Capitol, and she was criticized. Actually, she's gone gotten more than criticism. There have been some suggestions by Democrat Socialist members of the House that she was, uh, you know, in on the planning to to assault the Capitol because she did a tour of the Capitol with some constituents the day before the violence occurred. So your defense of Representative Boebert and, and articulating a little bit more beyond just constitutional rights, why this would be important for lawmakers to uh, be seen as uh, exercising their right to bear arms.
5: Yes. And actually reading and listening to some of the comments of one of her Democratic colleagues sort of smacks as sexism because his point was he seems to have been lecturing this young woman who seems a very accomplished American. I mean, she's a business owner, she's a mother, she's a a wife. I'm just wondering, what type of sexism is that when you have a male colleague actually telling you how to exercise your rights and how to provide your own security for you and your family? Yeah, so that sounds
2: like Uh, mansplaining to me.
5: Yeah, what about that, right? But look, I just think we're in a very perilous time, okay? Uh, We're a perilous time for all of our rights our first amendment freedom of religious rights we're in perilous time obviously for our freedom of speech rights and we're in a perilous time when it comes to our second amendment rights and i think it has to be more than just passing laws and and say you're fighting for it as legislators especially state legislators we're going to actually have to start exercising these rights to affirm that these are rights that we already have these are basic human rights Granted to us by our Creator, and the best thing that government can do is protect these rights. So we got to step up and do more, and and exercise, and let people know that we're actually we're actually exercising these rights, not just up here just making rhetorical arguments.
2: There's uh, some legislation that's already uh, circulating, with. Uh Within the House that would uh, provide for licensing of firearm and ammunition possession, the registration of firearms, prohibit the possession of certain ammo. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, she's from Texas. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I I know that's not something you're probably celebrating. Uh, She um, she wants you to have to register your firearms. By a federal license to buy or possess firearms or ammunition, federal license, how do you think that would fly uh, at the legislative level in Texas?
5: It wouldn't fly at all. It would be a, I guess what we call a streamer, you know, that would go down big. But this is so sad that our elected officials, with all of the problems that we have in our country, is more regulations and bureaucracy for law-abiding Texans, law-abiding Americans. We need to be focusing on things that matter like digging this economy out of the ditch before this uh, Chinese virus came to our shores. My friends, we had one of the strongest economies, one of the strongest, maybe not the strongest in history, I don't know, but definitely one of the most strongest economies in our nation's history and throughout the world. We were ushering in an era of peace by bringing our troops home from fighting endless wars uh, for years and years and years. And it seems like the only thing that we can focus on is how we can make life more bureaucratic and more burdensome and more unconstitutional for the people that really matter. And that's law abiding America.
2: In uh, New York State, uh, state legislator has introduced uh, legislation to ban the private ownership of bulletproof vests. When you uh, hear about legislation like that, what do you think? What do you think that New York State legislator and, and his supporters are trying to do?
5: Well, that's just, asinine. What is the goal of of prohibiting the purchase of bulletproof vests? They will have no impact on crime. Uh, They will have no impact on public safety. This is just more leftism virtue signaling with these pieces of legislation. But we need to watch out. I mean, you know, because when a bill is filed, that means it has a chance to pass. (laughs) So you can't just say, oh, it's just it's just crazy. It'll never pass. Well, it's out there. And in uh, and, and, and the places that these pieces of legislation are being passed and the senior legislators that are passing this legislation, you've got to watch it and we've got to defeat it.
2: I wanted to just uh, get you to offer perspective on the political culture in Texas, because I think it's so interesting. You know, when you're in a state like Illinois or where, where we live, you, you lose sight of the fact that not everybody lives like this. Uh, and uh, we have a professional political class here, right? We, I think like the second highest paid legislators, you vest for a pension after eight years, so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. And in Texas, the legislature meets once every two years, you pass two year budgets, uh, you, you, uh, have, you basically a stipend. Everybody has else, everybody has to have a real job because you can't live on what you make as a legislator. Just, just speak to that, that culture down there.
5: Okay. Well, well, and, and let me be totally honest about it. It's it's one of the greatest deliberative bodies in the world, and I, I'm just honored to serve in this capacity by constitu- constitutional mandate. We're only paid six hundred dollars a month throughout our term. We meet one hundred and forty days every other year on an odd number year. The governor can call us back for special sessions, but he must call us back for specific agenda so you know we just can't just come in and just go wild we i mean we can send him anything but the only legislation that he is even constitutionally subjected to consider for passage is what's on his what we call the special call now when we're in session uh, we are provided a per, a daily per diem. I don't know if it's one thirty or one fifty or, or that sort of thing. But to your point, you know, you just don't kind of remember a lot of this stuff because it's just six hundred dollars a month anyway, right? Uh, and um, and we do have an opportunity to get vested after eight years for a retirement program. But uh, I'm told that the average tenure of a member of the legislature is about four to five years anyway. Uh, so not very many of us you know, throughout history have, have reached that eight right. year mark. No but incentive, putting, but no incentive. Yeah, right. yeah. And, right. so, yeah. and so but putting that aside, but yeah. putting that aside, it's the idea uh, folks that you come back home and you really have to live, live your life, run your business under the crazy laws yeah. that you have um, passed yeah. for everybody else.
2: And people wonder why uh, so many people are moving to Texas. Um, isn't, isn't that interesting? Uh, it's not a surprise. And, and, and just just to confirm, because not everybody's been to Texas. Just to confirm now. Despite the fact you only meet once every two years, you only make seven mm-hmm. grand a year as a legislator, and so forth. People rotate in four or five years. You don't have a state income tax. Despite all that, um, you do have schools. You, you do have police departments, fire departments. Yes. You, you do you do yes. feature those things in Texas, right?
5: Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. We we,
2: we
4: try to it. value
5: local local discretion and local control. When it's constitutional, okay, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, tend, too many people tend to think local control is sacrosanct, but it's not. It, it still has to be constitutional and responsible to the people of Texas. But, yes, we have police departments, we have fire departments, we have city governments, we, we have all of that. But most importantly, we have Texans that are living uh, under the auspices of individual freedom. Uh, you don't need government every day. of your life, running every aspect of your life to have a prosperous and free uh, uh, environment.
2: Representative James White, state rep, Texas House District 9, chairman of the Texas House Corrections Committee as well. Representative White, thanks for joining us. Appreciate
5: it. Thank you. God bless.
0: Pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, who investigates the investigators, who watches the watchmen, who teaches the teachers. This seems to be a. Uh, uh, more pressing question than it's ever been, given the teachers union's recalcitrance and so many big cities to green light their members' return to teaching. You have uh, just, I mean, uh, recently, you uh, we talked about last week, San Francisco teachers demanding lids on all the toilets in order to return. Not kidding. New York City teachers union arguing that they shouldn't return until it's. Proven beyond a shadow of a doubt or whatever their standard is, that those who have been vaccinated cannot still spread the virus. In Los Angeles, the largest L.A. County Teachers Union has convinced city officials the schools must not only vaccinate every teacher before reopening the schools, but they must vaccinate every student as well. Of course, the problem being not just that students, because they're young are at the bottom of the prioritization list, but also because so many of the vaccines that have been green lighted by the FDA, the vaccines that have, there haven't been clinical trials on preteens. So now you're talking about uh, the the fall 2022. Who teaches the teachers about so many things? And uh, particularly with respect to the challenges the unions present for more on uh, answering that question. Pleased to be joined by Ted Tucker. He's the executive director of the Fund for American Studies high school programs. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Oh, no problem, Dan. Thanks for having me on. I I appreciate the time.
2: Yeah. Well, um, you're the answer to my question, who teaches the teachers, Uh, the Fund for American Studies teaches the teachers.
7: That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, we, uh, we run uh, professional development programs uh, for high school teachers, uh, throughout the United States. Um, programs range from uh, week-long residential programs uh, to two-hour virtual workshops um, and everything kind of in between. Uh, you know, this whole move uh, that we've seen, you know, to the virtual learning environment because of COVID-19 has really forced us to uh, to adapt quickly. Um, you know, before uh, last summer, everything we were doing was, was done in person. Um, but uh, once most in-person programming, you know, was canceled, we uh, needed to pivot quickly to offer virtual virtual programs. And, um, you know, it's important for us to meet the teachers where they are to make sure that the uh, the message of uh, economic freedom and the economic way of thinking is still being taught to the teachers who then in turn will be teaching their kids.
2: And, and so is the, uh, the focus on uh, – economic literacy for the teachers, so they might pass a little bit of that along to their students, or is it broader than that?
7: Uh, I think it's both. You know, I think that we are uh, really uh, believe in the importance of teaching uh, you know, what we call the economic way of thinking, uh, you know, using the tools of economic analysis to be better decision makers. And in our experience, um, most high school students aren't going to take, you know, they're going to take either econ in high school uh, and that's going to be it. You know, they're not going to go on. Uh, and so we want to make sure that the teachers are effective in, in uh, instructing the students with, um, you know, p- instructing students with bad economics. Um, and so, you know, we, uh, we recognize the, um, the powerful multiplier effect that one teacher will have. You know, if we can get our materials into the hands of a teacher – you know, they're going to teach, on average, 26 students, um, you know, in each of their classes. And so you can really reach a tremendous number of students um, through, uh, through teachers.
2: Absolutely. And when they go through this program and they, you know, come out the other side, what do they say about sort of the experience they had running through your practicum as compared to perhaps, say, uh, for those who were education majors, the sort of instruction in basic economics and the economic way of thinking, as you were describing it, uh, at the collegiate level. You know, they, 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 they want to be a teacher, they major in education, they go through college, they get out, they get their certificate, they start teaching. Um, how prepared were they uh, coming into the – how prepared do they think they were coming into your program versus how prepared or how much they changed coming out of it?
7: You know, that's a great, a great question. And what we have found is that um, many of the economics teachers in, uh, in public schools today – are teaching economics, because they were originally, you know, going to be a social studies teacher, you know, they wanted to teach American history. And when they were in college, they just happened to have taken one or two classes in economics. And they they show up at their school. uh, And the principal, you know, looks down the list of who's teaching next, you know, next year, and goes to the newest teacher and says, Oh, I see that you've had, uh, you know, an economics class, guess what, you're teaching economics next Fall, and so these teachers are, as you might imagine, uh, partially in a a panic, going, (laughs) "How do I do that?" I know I can
2: plot a supply and demand curve, but that's about it.
7: (laughs) Yeah, and so they, you know, they immediately start looking for opportunities to, "How am I going to be a better instructor? How am I going to teach this?" And we're there to offer them, you know, the the toolkit that they need. Uh, You know, that we have lessons for them that they can take and immediately apply into the classroom. Take it into the classroom. Uh, and more importantly, you know, we're an organization that really believes in activity-based learning. And so, you know, they're not only going to get, you know, uh, important instruction on economic content so that they'll be up to speed. You know, the teachers will better understand economics in general. But they're also going to have activities that they can take to their classroom that's really going to um, make the uh, the lesson engaging, uh, interesting, you know, for their students. Um, for their uh, students, you know, we use the term internalize, you know, the students are going to leave a lesson and really uh, have that uh, concept internalized and they're going to remember it.
2: And it seems to me when you talk about the economic way of thinking, I have this conversation on my radio programs all the time, COVID policy is a great example. It's not uh, so I can build uh, econometric models. It's so you understand and apply concepts like Opportunity cost, or in common parlance, trade-offs. Right, if you choose one path, you could you foreclose another, and you have to make assessments here. And how do you do that? Cost-benefit analysis and sort of basic concepts like that that have greater applicability.
7: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We really want to take the math out of out of economics. You know, at least at, at the high school level, uh, because these students, you know, as I said, they're really they're not going to take economics again, uh, or most of them won't. And so, but if they have these economic reasoning principles, you know, the ones you've just, uh, you've just stated, we think they're going to be better decision makers. Uh, if the students go into leadership roles, um, you know, especially like becoming public, uh, you know, elected public officials, uh, we're hoping that they're going to understand what you just said, you know, uh, the idea that choice impose imposed costs. Um, and so we want to make sure that both voters and citizen or public officials really understand that.
2: Um, He is Ted Tucker. He is the executive director of the Fund for American Studies High School Programs. You can get more information at uh, TFAS.org, Fund for American Studies, TFAS.org. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Oh, you're welcome.
2: Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies, the Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org.
5: It's a nice day to start again. It's a nice day
0: for a white wedding Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers He's Dan Proft And this is The Dan Proft Show
2: Welcome back to the show is this uh, last full day of the Trump administration. Also, the last full day of opportunity for any accountability with respect to the FBI and Department of Justice's handling of the Russian collusion and Hillary Clinton email investigations, everything that transpired for the first uh, two plus years of the Trump administration. Actually, of course, uh, dating back to his candidacy in 2016, that uh, topic revisited. Because of the Senate Judiciary document dump the end of last week, Uh, Shannon Bream over at Fox News had a couple of uh, our friends, Harmy Dillon and uh, University of California, Berkeley Law Professor John Yu weigh in on this. Here's what – Counselor Dillon had to say.
4: So disappointing, but I think we've already known about a lot of these things. You see evidence of the 302s that backed up the Carter Page FISA application simply disappearing from the files. That looks like what we call spoliation of evidence, and that's going to become relevant in Carter Page's civil rights lawsuits against the DOJ and others. Um, You see evidence. I, I would go much further than what Lindsey Graham said. He calls it incompetence and And in that level, I think it is absolute malevolence, intentional misconduct. And so far, you know, we only have the one um, person who's gone to jail. And Andrew McCabe, who played a critical role, is a CNN commentator. And uh, James Comey is out there Mm -hmm. writing books and pontificating. So nobody is being held accountable for the massive violations of American civil rights and using or allowing the FBI and DOJ to be used by a presidential campaign, i.e. Hillary Clinton's, to persecute American citizens. This is outrageous, regardless of your politics, it should never occur in America.
2: But it did, and uh, John you echoing uh, Harmeet Dillon's point that uh, in the best case scenario, it was incompetence.
8: Uh, you look at these documents and you add it to everything we already uh, know, and we still haven't learned everything because there's still a special counsel investigation uh, looking at this, and we still don't know the results of that. This is not old news of the FBI. No FBI agent, I would think, would want to come up to Congress and testify and say this was a justified investigation. The harder question is, as Harmi put I think I quite agree there. Is this a difference between just sheer arrogance that led to incompetence being duped by this steel dossier into a launching an investigation of a presidential candidate uh, by a major political party, which is the line you weren't supposed to cross after Watergate? Or was this actually malicious? Was it because... Jim Comey and other high ranking Obama intelligence and law enforcement officials could not stand Donald Trump and were willing to use the tools of power at their disposal to stop him. I hope the sad thing is I hope it's the former. That's just incompetence and not Mm -hmm. maliciousness.
2: For more on this and a number of other topics, please be joined by Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for being with us.
9: Oh, it's a pleasure, Dan.
2: So, uh, you know, the uh, much uh, anticipated, well, in some quarters, document dump, declassification of documents before Trump left office, uh, another pop gun for conservatives or anybody else who's interested in accountability for, for our top law enforcement and intel agencies.
9: Well, look, I, I think that uh, by and large, we're, as Harmy Dillon said in that segment you played from Fox. We, we basically know all of this now. We know what happened. I mean, it, it's not entirely satisfying uh, because nobody has been held accountable, really. I mean, all of their careers were disrupted at the FBI. But they're still, as she said, Jim Comey made millions of dollars on his book. He's teaching now at Columbia Law School. Uh, McCabe, same sort of deal. Uh, so, if you were anti- Trump, uh, that was a, that was a ticket to another payday. and that was enough. That's all you needed. You could break the law, you could break the rules, you could disgrace yourself, you could disgrace the FBI. you could be fired. didn't matter. There was There was an audience out there if you hated Donald Trump. And that, I think, is the overarching sadness and outrageousness of these situations. What they got away with simply because so many people hated Donald Trump so much that it didn't matter anymore. And I think that is, that is a, a real rupture in our society, in our government, in our culture. And I, I'm not sure how we put that piece back together.
2: Uh, when we come back, I uh, want to get your take on uh, this uh, exchange between Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi on Hillary Clinton's podcast talking about the need not just for impeachment 2.0, of course, but uh, for a 9-11-style commission in order to once again investigate Russian collusion and Trump. More with Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor, right after this.
0: the more you'll know. This this, this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. And Michael, uh, you wrote about this. The um, sales pitch was if we could get rid of Trump, then we could uh, restore... You know, the halcyon days of the Obama-Biden administration where, according to the left, we lived in harmony. Our democratic, uh, small-D democratic uh, government was protected and respected. But it is the left that won't let Trump go.
9: They need him. What will they do without Trump? Uh, They'll have to start fighting with each other. You know, Dan, I'm also reminded that those wonderful days of Obama and Biden administration, when they left office in 2016, of course, Donald Trump was elected, Republicans took both houses of Congress, and overall 1,000 held 1,000 more seats in government meaning legislative state houses governors congress over a th- and of course the presidency a thousand seats more making the democratic party at its lowest point in nearly a century since the 1920s so here we are 4 years later suddenly those were the good old days for democrats seems to me they're setting themselves up for another fall If they haven't learned anything about why the Republicans were so dominant in 16, 17 and 18, because and even now, this time, despite Biden's victory in the in the presidential election, you had the Republicans doing very well in both Senate and uh, House races, at least until Georgia, the Georgia runoffs. So I think that the Democrats should be careful about thinking that somehow they've got their mojo back and all they have to do is put the pedal to the metal, put the metal to the pedal, because it's not going to. I think, sell very well. We see already the caravans coming from Central America and assuming they're just going to be able to cross the border and come into America. Meanwhile, Biden is saying, don't come yet. Wait a little while. Why should they wait? Why don't they wait here rather than at home? So it's already, I think, trending in the direction that we're going to repeat all the mistakes that led to the Republican wins in 16. That's, that's what seems to be on, on the uh, ticket. Well,
2: how do you see impeachment 2.0 proceeding?
9: It's not clear, obviously, what Pelosi intends to do and what the Senate will, will do. It seems to me that the, what they are searching for is a time, A, when they can still do the Biden agenda confirmations, et cetera, but also can they get 17 Republicans to join with the Democrats? I would suspect not, but they certainly will get close to that. I think they'll get easily six or seven. So can they get another, you know, nine or ten? I think it would be suicide for Republicans to vote for this. I I mean, Donald, I I don't approve of how Trump handled events in those last uh, few weeks, but just in pure politics terms, if you're a Republican, if you're Mitch McConnell, if you hope to become majority leader again in 22... I don't see how you do that if you have seventy million Trump voters angry at you. How how,
2: uh, how did you receive what Carl Rove said uh, the other day, which is essentially that? If uh, he does put on a defense at the trial, if there is a trial and that's an open question, whether there'll be a trial, whether he'll put on a defense or or his defense will be not to put on a defense. But if he brings up or his representatives do his his attorneys, anything along the lines of the election was stolen and so on and so forth, what he communicated the last several weeks, then uh, he guarantees that he'll be convicted. That's what Karl Rove predicted in terms of the Republican obviously saying Republican Senate caucus, at least a plurality of them are in no mood to continue propagating that storyline for trump
9: well I, I don't know about Carol uh, uh, Carl's headcount, how he arrived at that, but but I do think it is the right advice just legally. Uh, I mean if, I think if you if you want to be acquitted, it seems to me the best argument is I said nothing, I did nothing to incite a riot. Here's my speech. I'll read it to you again if you want to hear it. I mean, that's what the lawyers would argue, I think, right? because it is it is a single article based on an incitement to insurrection. I believe those are the words. So everything else is detail about that. So your argument, I think, should address that directly and not make excuses for why you might have done it. I mean, I think saying that the election was stolen sounds like an excuse for whatever you did is okay. Mm -hmm. And so we know he believes the election was stolen and he truly believes it. So I I think there's no value to be gained in trying to persuade the Republican senators that the election was stolen or that that justifies anything else. I think the speech itself, while bitter and angry and ill-advised in some ways, was not The spark that lit the match, or or, or, yeah, the the match that lit the fire to start this invasion. I think that's his best argument.
4: Uh,
2: What about uh, Liz Cheney, number three in the House Republican caucus, one of the ten who voted to impeach Trump in the House and very publicly so? Uh, She took a very strident position. She was recently rebuked by a Republican county organization in her home state of Wyoming. You know, the fact that it was just 10 Republicans, House Republicans, that voted for impeachment. What is the future in the party for someone like Liz Cheney and those other Republicans who voted to impeach?
9: Well, uh, we'll have to see how the, you know, if we're just talking about the trial and if there is one and how that goes, I mean, that may color the. The, how people see what she did. But in the short term, I, mean, I was just talking before with someone uh, who said that uh, in Mon- in uh, Wyoming, the feeling is that uh, she couldn't be elected dog catcher now. Mm-hmm. I and mean, don't I forget, she's the only member of Congress right. uh, in the House, in the state. And so that's a, that's a lot of people who are out there thinking, well, you don't represent me. Uh, so I, I think that when you're a leader, you, you you do bear responsibility. You're not a leader if nobody follows you. And so she's number three in the caucus, and only nine other Republicans join her out of roughly 212 or something. Uh, that's not very compelling in terms of your leadership. And so I think the Republicans in Congress would certainly, you know, have, have some justification for dumping her as leader. I, I just don't see how that – how she represents them. I think she's, you know, you're supposed to count heads and you're supposed to know where what your caucus wants. And it's, she's like a politician uh, telling voters, uh, you know, go jump in a lake. I don't care what you want. Well, you don't get to keep your job then. So I think as a leader, she's failed.
2: Right. And there's 91% of Republicans opposed Trump's impeachment nationwide. In, in Wyoming, it's got to be darn near... Uh... Unanimous, so yeah. You would
9: think right, yeah. yeah. She's out of she's out of step with the party nationally and with her own home state voters. So it's not a good sign.
2: Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it.
9: My pleasure. Dan. Come on, baby, don't feel the repo. Baby, take my hand.
10: Don't feel the repo. We'll be able to fly. Don't the
0: repo. Listen to podcast of the show at DanProfShow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. Having a difficult time deciding whether or not to uh, root for, perhaps even place a friendly wager on the Packers or the Bucks this weekend, if you're still even paying attention to the NFL, which is, I know, a big if for many. Probably not because both Green Bay and Tom Brady evoke strong opinions because Tom Brady's a cheater. So I think you know, kind of know where I'm leaning, even though I'm a Chicagoan. Speaking of Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers taking a timeout of NFC Championship prep to go on the pat mcafee show uh he's a former punter for the colts a friend of rogers apparently and the reason for rogers appearance on his program was to talk about the uh barstool sports uh, the five hundred thousand dollar donation he made to the barstool sports relief fund that uh portnoy over there at uh, barstool sports set up to uh distribute to small businesses around the country it's a great thing it's very cool it's great that rogers got involved and uh it's interesting what he chose to do in explaining the basis for his contribution and support for the initiative and some others. If you didn't like Aaron Rodgers before, if you're, you don't like the Packers, boy, it's going to be tough not to like him after this, I think.
11: It's just not having a reliance on the government to, to help, uh, help you out, because obviously it's shown that's not going to be the way they're going to do it. I mean, they have put these rules in place. They're not even following their own rules. I mean, don't, no. you know. How many people have gotten caught? Don't travel. Don't leave the state. Oh, here's so and so on a vacation. Oh. Don't. Go, oh, here's so and so at a salon. Don't. Don't eat out at a restaurant. You know, unless you're wearing a mask and, and separate. Oh, here's a picture of uh, the governor of California violating those rules. Oh, public schools are closed, but I can send my kids to a private school in person. School and it's like, I mean, for us to to count on the government to help us out is is becoming a joke at this point. We've seen, you know, they they drop a five hundred page bill and millions and and in some cases billions of dollars go on to other countries. Like it's not like they're keeping this money back on the home front. For Trillions,
0: us. I think, at this point. <laughs>
2: I, I think it's uh boy, Gavin Newsom. He uh, went after not by name but by title, uh, and he you know he's a native Californian, so he can do that, and so can anybody. And everybody should May I hope he signs the uh, recall petition just uh, as a show of solidarity, even though I'm not sure he's still a California resident. But uh, that plus uh, just the reliance on the government, <laughs> he, apparently Aaron Rodgers not on board for using our tax dollars to fund gender programs in Pakistan either. Pretty good stuff. And by the way, on the hypocrisy front, I got another one for you. This is good. Former New York State Democratic Party leader John Sullivan, who worked as the upstate coordinator for St. Cuomo of COVID-19 his re-election campaign in 2014. He received the first dose of the coronavirus in Florida. Sullivan, 73, resident of New York, subleased an apartment in St. Petersburg, Florida, so he was eligible to receive the vaccine. And I was down in Florida for the holidays. There's a lot of uh, vaccine tourism going on. He admitted, did this former New York State Democratic Party leader, that he probably wouldn't have gotten it by now in New York, even though he's 73 years old. And so, right there among those first eligible for the vaccine almost everywhere Mm -hmm. and how are the two governors respectively covered by the dc press corps reflecting on the last year well let's see who's got the book deal and who doesn't just for starters so anyway hat tip aaron Rodgers, both for the donation to support small businesses as well as for the commentary good stuff and i'll be rooting for the pack this weekend
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to
2: the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at uh, com, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show on social media. What to do with the blacklisting and the purging of big tech companies in corporate America more generally? Do you uh, just walk away from the platforms? Do you stop patronizing the businesses, purchasing their products? More uh, undercover journalism from James O'Keefe and Project Veritas. Uh, this time they... Um, were able to video some of the comments of a Twitter executive named Vijaya Gaddy. She is Twitter's legal policy and trust lead. Uh, and here's what she said about uh, the uh, purging going on at Twitter, extending well beyond banning Donald Trump.
12: There's also been a lot of questions about retros um, and um uh, of course, we're going to do a retro. I mean, we're, we're, we're in the midst of a retro around the election. Generally, this will be most definitely folded into it. I th- what we saw Wednesday morning was really concerning to us, obviously. So uh, a small team gathered from Trust and Safety. We were discussing um, the potential for violence to happen, and we decided to uh, escalate our enforcement of the civic integrity policy and use use. Um, a label that disabled engagements um, to stop the spread of potentially inflammatory um, content, which is the content around uh, election interference, election fraud, stealing the election, um, that type of thing. We think that the severity of what's happening on the ground, coupled with the information that's contained in these tweets this misleading information about the election being stolen um, and uh, massive fraud around the election are what is changing our analysis of how we should enforce this policy. Um, It is a much more severe violation um, given what we're seeing on the ground. We've made the decision yesterday that we are going to actually um, be more aggressive in our enforcement beyond deamplification. We are actually going to, for accounts that are primary purpose, um, spreading QAnon theories, we are going to, conspiracy theorists, we are going to be permanently suspending those accounts. We are
11: doing everything that we can to ensure that... Twitter is being used in a positive way, a positive way affects society.
2: Yeah, that at the end, obviously, was uh, the garden gnome, Jack Dorsey. Um, so they're going to expand. And I'm not just talking about QAnon. They're using QAnon as a cover to talk about it, expanding more generally to expunge dissent. Uh, and in case you're skeptical, Max Boot writing in The Washington Post, Trump couldn't have incited sedition without the help of Fox. He tweeted, this is consistent with his column. Biden needs to reinvigorate the FCC to slow the lies and sedition from Fox and other right-wing broadcasters, like your friends here at Talk Radio, or else the terrorism we saw on January 6th may only be the beginning rather than the end of the plot against America. You're all violent extremists listening to violent extremists. The FCC needs to get involved to shut down the lines of communication among the violent extremists. That's the message. Blacklists are the rage in publishing, a response from Thomas Spence, who is the president of Regnery Publishing. This is in response to Regnery announcing that they will publish Josh Hawley's book after his contract with Simon & Schuster was canceled. But it's more than about Josh Hawley. Uh, Mr. Spence writes, uh, In recent days, I've been taking calls from journalists asking which authors I would refuse to publish. That's an odd question to ask an American publisher, but it's suddenly it's but suddenly it seems to be on everyone's mind in our industry. Some 250 self-described publishing professionals, mostly junior employees of major houses, have issued a statement titled No Book Deals for Traders, a category in which they include any quote unquote participant in the Trump administration rather than calling it cancel culture. Mr. Spence prefers the older term that goes back to the McCarthy era blacklisting because uh, it reminds people of the ugliness of that period now being visited upon in this period. Not so long ago, writes Spence, publishing professionals would have been horrified to be accused of that. Today, they compete to see who can proclaim his blacklist with the fiercest invective. Uh, he concludes that today's censors recognize no limits with any appeals to the real professionals of publishing. Some of you may be the bosses and mentors of those who signed that mindless rant he wrote about, he referenced. Remember, you are Americans. Americans argue, write, preach, campaign, and vote. They don't blacklist. Now, on the opposite side of uh, corporate titans like Richard Branson, who said of the uh, January 6th assault, the Capitol riot stemmed from white Americans' fear of losing power. (sighs) Yeah, right. This is the line. This is the cover story. White Americans fear losing power. This is what the enforcers of the blacklisting left use to cover their anti small d democratic illiberal authoritarian impulses and actions if not a foul of federal law or the constitution by the letter it certainly it is a foul of both in spirit so what to do perhaps a hint um, i refer to goya Foods ceo and president bob Una Anu'e, who uh, you may remember from uh, a couple of months ago, he was targeted by AOC and her brigade for daring to compliment President Trump and compare his own entrepreneurial story and that of his family's to President Trump's. Uh, he said uh, recently, we are one nation under God. We are not one nation under Twitter. We're not one nation under big media or under central government. We're trying to have media, big tech control our lives, the government control our lives. They want to cancel God. They want to cancel our speech. They want to cancel our culture, our history, our liberty. They want to control us. The few controlling the many like a bunch of sheep. None of these people care about us. We cannot move away from God. We need to love and to build, not hate and destroy. So there's one corporate CEO of a very successful going concern that is willing to stand and be counted. What about you? There's a good uh, piece, and I talked to the gentleman yesterday, a guy named Mark Pulliam, uh, who lives in East Tennessee now. And he lives in a, a community in East Tennessee that went 70 percent for Trump. And yet when he looks around at the institutions in his community, what's happening at his Presbyterian church, what's happening in his school, you know, what they're teaching, what he sees uh, being, pump, being pumped out of that school, what he sees in the local newspaper, it's all left. And this is the same thing that happened in Illinois. You think I live in a, you know, center-right, sensible enclave. Uh, well, the left is happy to incur in those enclaves. And if you don't want to defend your institutions, if you don't want to defend your community, if you don't want to pay any mind to what's being taught in the schools or preached from the pulpit, then they're happy to roll right over you and, and uh, have people say, I remember when DuPage County used to be Republican. I remember when the North Shore used to be Republican. So that's why I say, and we've said on the show before, you know, pay attention to what's happening right next door to you. In the institutions, you're already a participant. The question is, what are you going to do about what you know to be true? Parlor's not coming back, I don't think. I think parlor has got a real problem. And with each passing day, uh, it's more and more complicated. And I don't want to get into the technical details of it, but I talked to somebody who is um, – uh, very knowledgeable in this space about uh, websites and server web servers like Amazon web services that's that specifically. And, and you know how you have to program and how you have to deprogram. And in fact, John mates, the CEO said, basically he's frozen out. He posted this uh, like message, like hi, is anybody there? And that, you know, to try and keep people engaged. And I understand what he's doing. I'm, I appreciate it. I have tremendous respect for what parlor attempted to do, what he's trying to do. But they made a decision to go with Amazon Web Services, and that's probably going to be a fateful decision. That's not to say that something else won't spring up. Uh, But, you know, I think this this idea of, um, you know, we were talking about Trump. What's the takeaway from the Trump uh, presidency? And my key takeaway where I think he shifted the paradigm for the GOP was attitude, unyielding in the fight, even if the articulation or the target wasn't always uh, the best choice. He was on. Offense against his political opponents and unyielding in the fight. And yet I hear everybody saying, just get off Twitter, get off Facebook, get off this, get off that. There's somebody uh, who, who wrote this. Oh, in the American Thinker, there's a piece by Hugh Myers. Uh, you know, check out Parler, Rumble, read the Bongino Report. Why? The Epoch Times, watch uh, American Thought Leaders, so on and so forth. Yeah, okay, some of that's okay. Um, but the whole point is get in your silo. No. I mean, for some people, fine. But there have to be some people that want to stay in the arena and battle the left on every platform. I mean, isn't that consistent with what Trump would do? And by the way, was doing until he was banned in Twitter. I mean, think about Churchill in 1940. And this this is maybe this is a bit uh, of a stretch in terms of comparison. But uh, this is not saying anybody's a Nazi. This is just talking about sort of attitude the attitude about a threat to your freedom and this is a threat to your freedom what's happening this fight i'm talking about of course is intellectual fighting on the social me- social media platforms fighting intellectually through reason within your circles of influence fighting for the civic and cultural institutions that make america america and make sure that they're the values they that, that that guide their operation are consistent with our founding values. That's the fight on every front. I've done everything
5: for you. you nothing for me. I've done everything for you. You've done
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show and switching from big tech to big teachers unions and the big leftists that run K through 12 school systems around the country. Uh, I know folks pay attention to some extent, maybe not as much as they would like, uh, and certainly not as much as they need to in terms of what's happening in their kids' schools. We had this conversation with Mark Pulliam yesterday, Uh, lived in East Tennessee, having some experience with... uh, how the Jacobin left works, being a California transplant. He uh, living in a county in East Tennessee that went 71 uh, percent for Trump. And what Mark noticed, though, as he started to you know, build ties in the community is what he was hearing from the pulpit in his Presbyterian church, what he was seeing coming out of the local school, what he was reading in the local newspaper. Wasn't really consistent with the idea that this was a seventy thirty Trump county, and this is how you lose communities and you lose regions and you lose states and you lose a country, and this is where everybody can be impactful because, like Mark in East Tennessee, you know, I'm going, I'm going to this church or I'm going to what church? I'm my kids are going to be in this school, this uh, you know, this newspaper is run by a couple of people that live right here, or certainly. Uh, I'm going to have conversations about the community that's built around this community newspaper content at the coffee shop, at the bar, wherever. This is where you can be an opinion leader. And so paying attention, the advantage or the opportunity that the left is trying to seize and seize and seize with respect to the control they exercise over these cultural and civic institutions. They're building always pushing it forward from what has been built previously. The beachheads they build, even where they're outnumbered, beachheads they build and then launch from. And what Churchill's uh, observation that you should try to win fights that you see before you when you have the advantage, because if you don't, by the time you get around to having a willingness to fight, you can find out that the fight has already been lost. And that was uh, almost what happened to Western Europe Because of the policy of appeasement, you know, Nivelle Chamberlain, peace in our time crowd. Well, we have that at the local level in so many instances here. So uh, what is the uh, opportunity provided for the left by January 6th and the storytelling about it by the D.C. Press Corps? Here we go. Crank up our infrastructure. Let's get a practicum together. Let's have a lesson plan that can be cut and pasted and used for teachers around the country. Well, this uh, practicum posted at beyond dot com, which is a left wing website developed by Alyssa Hadley Dunn, associate professor of teacher education at Michigan State. Uh, is for teaching kids about what happened on January 6th that quick. They're on it. And this popped up in a suburban Chicago school district in an area that used to be a Republican bastion and now is not to my point about the conversation we have with Mark Pulliam. Listen to uh, the instructions from the good Michigan state professor. All you really need, you don't even need to get in uh, depth with uh, the practicum. All you have to do is hear the notes and how they're, segregated and i use that word purposefully uh professor dunn's note to black teachers i'm reading from it i hope that you have time and space to care for yourselves as you support your students i hope that you have white colleagues who are talking about this too so you do not have to be the only one i hope that you can find co-conspirators in your schools or here co-conspirators is an interesting choice of words isn't it that was the note to black teachers the note to white teachers of white students. So now you got to segregate the teachers and the students by race. White teachers of white students. By the way, there's no note to black teachers of black students. No note to black teachers of black students uh, of white students, just black teachers. And it's, you know, it's all of the patronizing. Um, let me help you with your trauma. The note to whites st- the note to white teachers is, you know, you better Mind yourself as you're about to hear. Note to white teachers of white students, you have to talk about what's happening. Half, all caps. Uh, no serious writer does that. This is on us every time and all the time. We cannot pretend to be surprised anymore. Surprised by what? We have to do what we said we were going to do all summer when we were reading those anti-racist books and completing those anti-racist, anti-racism checklists. And as you know, uh, anti-racist and anti-racism code for racist and racism. Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo. That's what the professor is referring to. Our white students are not too young to learn about this. No to white teachers of students of color, especially black students. Please make sure you know what you're doing before you do it. Please make sure you know how to support your black students and other students of color. If you try to have these conversations, make sure you, uh, to not to do, uh, Make sure not to do more harm by entering these conversations without careful thought and planning. So the white teachers get patronized and infantilized a bit too, don't they? Facilitate honest conversations? No, no, no. Kid gloves. This is why our friend Bob Woodson in our conversation yesterday on the program said uh, he would much rather deal with the honest bigot than the disingenuous patronizing white leftist like uh, the good professor from Michigan state that's circulating. And in places like uh, Evanston, Skokie district 65 in suburban Chicago. Remember I talked about this the end of last week. This is the gra- the uh, uh, grade school district that uh, both in which the, both the superintendent and the school board say that if you are pushing for the kids to be back in school, Despite 190, you know, studies in 190 countries that there is no correlation between students in the classroom and an outbreak of COVID. If you push for kids to be back in school on a timeline that is not theirs, then you are a white supremacist, even if you're doing so from a place of science, as, say, a pediatrician, as a couple of the parents petitioning the school board to return to in classroom learning were. And that's how they were treated. Well, uh, the lesson's out. D.H. Uh, District 65, I should say equity weeks and Black Lives Matter equity week. Yeah. Week of action, national demands end zero tolerance mandate black history and ethnic studies. Hire more black teachers, fund counselors, not cops. Those are the highlights starting in preschool, preschool. Here's the first grade week for the BLM uh, equity week. Here's the lineup. Restorative justice, empathy and loving engagement. Restorative justice to a first grader. Diversity and globalism. That's day two, day three, I should say. Day, day four, queer, trans-affirming, and collective value. That's day four for first graders. Day five, intergenerational black families and black villages, and rounded out with black women and unapologetically black. And you tell me they're trying to build uh, good citizens in that school district or agitprop addled leftist activists. Pay attention to what's happening in your schools and share the information. Take up the fight now before it's too late when you do.
0: Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Congressman Stephen Finger Looking Cohen. You may remember him from his KFC stunt when uh, Attorney General Barr wouldn't endure his nonsense at a committee hearing. Yeah, that's that Stephen Cohen. He he was on CNN yesterday talking about uh, preparations for the inauguration, the military presence there and concerns about the National Guardsmen. No, not whether or not there were enough, whether or not there was a fifth column action potentially afoot among the Guardsmen, you know, because they're white
10: morning, I was reading about this on my Twitter account, I guess, and people were reminding people of Ambar Sadat and Indira Gandhi who were killed by their own, their own people. Um, you know, I was thinking the Guard is 90 some odd percent, I believe, male, only about 20 percent of white males voted for Biden. you got to figure that in the Guard, which is predominantly more conservative, and I see that on my social media and we know it, they're probably not more than 25 percent of the people that are there protecting us who voted for Biden. The other 75 percent are in the class that would be uh, the, the large class of folks who might want to uh, uh, do something. And there were military people and police who took oaths to defend the Constitution and to protect and defend who didn't do it, who were in the, the insurrection. So it does concern me. Absolutely not Jim, but you know, the, you, you draw first. In the first circles people who were for Trump and not for Biden, as far as people who would be within uh, the, the zone of folks who you'd be suspect of. Suspect group is large.
2: A lot of suspects uh, among the 25,000 National Guardsmen and how many ever hundreds of thousands more around the country, those white National Guardsmen who voted for Trump. You know, you have to start out from the premise, they're suspected assassins. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, author of Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So, um, the, um... The idea that you uh, draw concentric circles around uh, the National Guard contingent there, and let's see, white, Trump voter, that's the suspect group in terms of some sort of uh, threat to public safety, threat to the Biden presidency and President Biden himself, according to Stephen Cohen, he's very concerned about this.
13: Yeah, I mean, I'm doing my best to be as charitable as possible here. The threat environment, just as we understand it from public reporting, is pretty significant and Law enforcement agencies around the country are prepped for some sort of events to occur today, tomorrow, and the days after. And so that can lead to a state of paranoia, and I understand it, and it's not necessarily inadvisable to be vigilant. Nevertheless, what the Congressman articulated here is nothing short of bigotry. Uh, I don't see any way to describe it other than that. I mean, just to take his figures alone, assuming he's just not babbling off the top of his head. The 20% figure doesn't make any sense if you're talking about voters. According to the exit polling, 38% of white males and 44% of white females voted for Joe Biden. So he's not talking about the voting population. It's more egregious than that. He's talking about the entire adult population of a particular complexion. And that particular complexion is what renders them suspect. It's not only an to the guardsmen, servicemen generally, who take a note to the Constitution, but millions of law abiding adults, it is, however, the ineluctable logic of whiteness. This is this vogue pseudo academic theory that's prevalent on the left, which presupposes that whiteness is prevalent in every sector of society and It is not an indicator of racial characteristics. It doesn't describe racial characteristics, but ideological proclivities, according to people who describe it, except when it describes racial characteristics. It's a really malleable philosophy, and what it essentially does is articulate a logic for bigotry that is just academic enough to make it seem like it's not abject racism. But then occasionally, somebody who is steeped in these ideas, like Representative Cohen, comes along and exposes it for what it is.
2: And uh, will uh, Representative Cohen and... um... His colleagues, whether in the academy or just in the House Democrat caucus, are they um, advancing the stated goal of healing the nation that I continue to hear so much about?
13: I don't imagine how this does much healing at all. Um, look, the the threat is real, as I said before. The events on January 6th were seminal and they were traumatic. I understand the desire to engage in some overreach here because the threat is profound and it was it was scary, and we should accept that it was scary. But there's nothing obviously that would relieve the kind of tensions that we're seeing here when you have members of Congress literally vilifying the majority of the population because of their skin color, and as though that is some sort of an enlightened and informed position. The only way you get there is because this idea has been mainstreamed by center-left academics, by center-left political figures, as though it's a legitimate idea. You don't have to scratch the surface before you get down to you know, the, the obvious contradictions within it, which any superstition is exposed as once you examine it too too closely, it's a species of any other sort of racial paranoia of the sort that the left has no problem recognizing when we're talking about minority populations. But it is a mirror image, and it is just as pernicious.
2: I, I'm not sure about that. So let's hold for a second and pick up our conversation about uh, everything that transpired on January 6th. Right after this, more with Noah Rothman coming up. It
5: didn't stop me.
0: Listen, the more you'll know this, this. is this is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with commentary magazines, Noah Rothman, about uh, everything that transpired leading up to and after January 6th. And a little bit of a discussion about sort of who has been consistent in opposition to Violence as the means to political ends, and who has not been so consistent and opposed to that sort of violence that occurred at the Capitol as we are the violence that occurred on the streets of America's cities last summer. That is not a position that is adopted by the left. In point of fact, they can't even bring themselves to talk in real time about rioting and violence that's still being generated by Antifa in Portland, in San Diego, in New York. Yesterday, on the occasion of the observance of Martin Luther King's. Life and Times, you had uh, what a dozen arrests in New York City by Black Lives Matter types who can't apparently assemble peacefully. The point is that across the board, conservatives are denouncing violence and say, we want to live in a peaceful, perilous society. We'll stand up to thuggery, but we don't use political violence preemptorily. That is not legitimate. Protest ends with civil disobedience in this country, a la King. And the left is not of that attitude. So it seems to me there's a real disconnect, but there is a real consistency with respect to most conservatives about what we saw on the 6th than what we saw last year and continues into this year in America's streets.
13: Well, I think you can make a case for that. It's a case that I tend to agree with. Nevertheless, I do think the effort to shift blame away from the president for the conditions that he incepted, that he created on that day in which he spent days on Twitter trying to create this this crowd and threaten the Senate with a crowd like he's literally like he's Mark Antony after Julius Caesar's assassination. Saying, I am the guy with the mob and they won't stand for this. And then directing them towards the Capitol and setting them loose and then being shocked by the, by the events that followed. There is an effort, according to polling at least, among Republicans, Republican leaners, and conservatives in the general population to absolve the president. Of any responsibility for that condition, and I think it's blame shifting. I don't think that's addressing the conditions that we're that we're living with now. And if they're in a forthright fashion, one that is um, a little uncomfortable, well, well they're, uh, they're, and that's not going to and that's not going to re- resolve the conditions that we're dealing with now.
2: There is something there, though, too. Note with respect to the words that Trump used on that day. I'm separating this from his lethargy and responding to when the violence unfolded, but. But the words he used in the day go over to the Capitol. We're going to cheer the people that support us and we're going to not cheer the people that don't. And we're going to peacefully and he used that word peacefully, you know, represent ourselves. Um, so, you know, in on the one hand, you have a lot of people that have said, you know, the President Trump needs to be held accountable for the words he uses over the last four years when he you know, speaks off the cuff and he speaks imprecisely and he um, speaks ham handedly. And on the other hand, he doesn't get to, held accountable for the words he actually used in that speech that supposedly incited a mob.
13: Yeah, and I, I, I have a little sympathy for that argument. And I'll tell you why. And I'll use the Georgia example, for example, because people will say, you know what? The Georgia Senate races weren't lost because of him. He literally told people to go vote. Yeah, he did in a perfunctory fashion once. After spending two months saying that the people you were supposed to go for had cheated him out of an election and that you need to take some sort of revenge. Now, guess what? It turns out that maybe 10, 15 percent of reliable Republican voters, particularly in very conservative districts like Marjorie Taylor Greene, didn't turn out, cost Republicans the Senate. Yeah, Trump told them to go vote. But a small portion of those people also heard the context within those remarks were made and drew the conclusions that any person with the commonality of the English language would understand. They didn't have to overcome this kind of that's the doubt that he was sowing subconsciously and consciously in his voters. So no. I don't think that's a compelling rationale. Well, I think everybody understood what he was saying, even though literally once in a while he gave himself a little out that he could point to. But the totality of his remarks pointed in one direction and one direction
2: only. There, there's, there's yeah, that, that starts from a premise that I find troublesome, which is that you know, 70 million people or 3 million people, 5 million people in Georgia – are just uh, mindless automatons and they go in whichever direction Trump is uh, saying you should go or hinting you should go. And I just don't think that's the case, even 10 to 15 percent of them. I mean, you know, that same 10 to 15 percent could have come to that conclusion themselves. We had a lot of callers on this show after the election that basically said, I'm never voting again. It had nothing to do with Georgia or any pronouncement. By Trump on Georgia, you had obviously you had uh, Lynn Wood losing his mind down there, but uh, clearly having an audience, Sidney Powell sort of aiding and abetting him. I mean, it's hard to all this stuff is visited upon Trump's doors. And I'm not like this is not some knee jerk defense. I just don't think that the narrative really captures all the variables. And I think it starts from faulty premises like uh, everybody is sitting waiting for, you know, the high sign explicitly or implicitly from Trump in terms of what they're going to do or not do in a particular election or on a particular day at a particular rally.
13: I mean, it's an unfalsifiable premise. Sure. Nevertheless, I do think it's kind of difficult to imagine that which happened happening in the absence of Donald Trump saying that everybody from the Republican governor to the Republican secretary of state is aligned against you in a cabal conspiring against your interests to undermine an election that's going to be invalid anyway but please go vote well, the notion that had the notion that that, that that is just ignored by these voters strikes me as suspect too
2: uh, i want to move past georgia and since we're we're so focused on trump and the left was so focused on trump for 4 years they wanted him to go and now they don't want him to go they want him to you know, face a, a senate impeachment trial of course Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton agree that there should be some sort of 9-11 style commission to reinvestigate the reinvestigation of the reinvestigation of the Russian collusion allegations. Uh, they want to keep him around just as long as they can.
13: Well, that's insane. I can't imagine that there, there's a single detail about the the past four years involving Russia that we don't know. I do think there's room for a, a bipartisan blue ribbon commission, what have you, to investigate the events of the sixth. There are just far too many details that are blurry and who is where. And we don't know a lot of this information. And what we're getting from our press reports is really kind of damning and needs to be definitively proven. I don't think that the press reports are sufficient in that regard. And, I, and I, I, we, we know now that there's a tendency in this political culture now to indulge conspiratorial thinking, and we can't allow that to fester. Nonetheless, it's pretty clear that the Trump administration ends, but the Trump presidency does not, if only insofar as the fact that we get a Senate trial involving impeachment. So the president will be a part of our political culture, even after he's out of office. And I don't think it's in anybody's anybody really has a problem with that. Democrats have a political incentive, even if they genuinely want to move on from this moment have a political imperative to tether Republican lawmakers to Trump for as long as they can. Just look at his poll numbers. He's unpopular. So they have to tie him to them. Republicans don't have an incentive to get rid of Trump because Trump motivates their base, animates their base. He's the most important, most popular, rather, figure in the Republican Party. The media is not going to let go of him because he's a ratings bonanza. And Trump himself doesn't want to go anywhere. So Trump isn't going anywhere.
2: All right. Uh, so he'll get he'll, he'll get a second he'll get a second term in shadow format. He'll be around for at least another 4 years. Uh, Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, author of Unjust: Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
0: Of the show at danprofshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show as so we close out this uh, inauguration and impeachment Eve program. I thought this study may be uh, particularly useful for a show like mine that uh, spends so much time monitoring politicians, what they do, what they say. How they behave, what they say about how they behave, what they say about what they said. Uh, the study uh, about how you can tell if someone is lying to you. The Royal Society's Open Science Journal uh, published this study. I hope you didn't let your subscription run out. How you can tell if someone is lying to you. Well, normally, the first thing I do is see if they have a D or R in parentheses after their name with a state abbreviation. And if they do, then I can tell they're lying to me. hi Uh Here's what... Uh, the researchers found liars often deliberately change their behavior into a way they think truth tellers behave. But this particular copycat behavior is something they wouldn't even try to manipulate because they don't realize they're doing it. So they said it could be, this is uh, conducted by a researcher, at least uh, in part researcher at Erasmus university, Rotterdam in the Netherlands published in the Royal society's open science journal. Uh, That could be make an interesting cue for detecting deceit. uh, Somebody trying to, copycat another's behavior that somebody they believe to be a truth teller's behavior so how did they do it they went about it the methodology i know you're interested (laughs) and wait there's a kicker here this is almost like one of some of these covid studies the study asked university students to solve a puzzle while under the impression that the task should take five minutes or less in reality it was a much harder task than the time they were allotted the researcher encouraged cheating by the from uh by the participants. She provided clues to solve the puzzle, then pretended to confess that she left those clues there accidentally, asking the students not to inform her supervisor of the slip up, but to feel free to use the hints to solve the riddle. Participants were strapped into sensitive uh, motion trackers. They weren't aware that it wasn't their puzzle solving ability that they were being monitored, but how they discussed the task. If they Heeded the researcher's request, they'd be forced to lie about how they successfully solved the puzzle by using the clues. And so on observation, researchers found that liars tended to mirror the body language of the person with whom they spoke about the puzzle, whereas honest participants moved differently from their conversational counterpart. So you got that. I use the clues to solve the puzzle, but I don't want to be honest about it because she asked me not to tell. So I'm going to lie about it. So the liar would mimic the language of the person inquiring about solving the puzzle. And the honest participants move differently from the same person inquiring. The researcher believes the mental load of lying might be too much for our brains, which resort to copycat behavior, while the intellectual mind is focused on crafting their deception. But uh, the changes are subtle. I was hoping this would be maybe a little bit more obvious so I could employ it when I play Texas Hold'em or something. But here's the kicker. Researchers ultimately, as interesting as this is, it's about to get less interesting. Listen, researchers conclude the study is limited in its finding as the motion sensors couldn't determine who was imitating whom, meaning the reverse is also possible that the innocent person, the truth teller, may have been mimicking the liar rather than the liar mimicking the innocent person. Well, thanks a lot. That's not going to win me any World Series of Poker. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Stay informed. So you can be courageous and we can live in a free society. Join us again tomorrow on Inauguration slash Impeachment 2.0 Day.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.